10, is as this are far rarer than those of Jacobean times. Country Life. September 17, 1904. But Barrington Court has fallen on evil days, one half of the house only is now habitable, the rest having been completely gutted about 80 years ago. The Great Hall is used as a cider store. The wainscoting has been ruthlessly removed, and there have even been recent suggestions of moving the whole structure across England and re-erecting it in a strange county. It has several times changed hands in recent years, and under these circumstances it is not surprising that but little has been done to ensure the preservation of what is indeed an architectural gem. But the walls are in excellent condition and the roofs fairly sound. The National Trust, like an angel of mercy, has spread its protecting wings over the building, friends have been found to succor the court in its old age, and there is every reason to hope that its evil days are past, and that it may remain standing for many generations. The wealth of treasure to be found in many country houses is indeed enormous. In Holinch's Chronicle of England, Scotland and Ireland, published in 1577, there is a chapter on the manner of building and furniture of our houses wherein is recorded the costliness of the stores of plate and tapestry that were found in the dwellings of nobility and gentry and also in farmhouses, and even in the homes of inferior artificers. Verily the spoils of the monasteries and churches must have been fairly evenly divided. These are his words, the furniture of our houses also exceedeth, and is grown in manner even to passing delicacy, and herein I do not speak of the nobility and gentry only, but even of the lowest sort that have anything to take to. Certes in noblemen's houses it is not rare to see abundance of array, rich hangings of tapestry, silver vessel, and so much other plate as may furnish sundry cupboards to the sum oft times of a thousand or two thousand pound at the least, where be the value of this and the rest of their stuffed up grow to be inestimable. Likewise in the houses of knights, gentlemen, marcontmen, and other wealthy citizens, it is not gizon to behold a generally their great provision of tapestry turkey work, pewter, brass fine linen, and their two costly cupboards of plate were five or six hundred pound, to be dimmed by estimation, but as herein all these sorts do far exceed their elders and predecessors, so in time past the costly furniture stayed there, whereas now it is descended yet lower, even unto the inferior artificiers and most firmers who have learned to garnish also their cupboards with plate, their beds with tapestry and silk hanginges and their table with fine napiery whereby the wealth of our country doth infinitely appear. Farmers, much of this wealth has, of course, been scattered. Time, poverty, war, the rise and fall of families, have caused the dispersion of these treasures. Sometimes you find valuable old prints or china in obscure and in likely places. A friend of the writer, overtaken by a storm, sought shelter in a lone Welsh cottage. She admired and bought a rather curious jug. It turned out to be a somewhat rare and valuable ware, and a sketch of it has since been reproduced in the Connoisseur. I have myself discovered three Bartolozzi engravings in cottages in this parish. We give an illustration of a 17th century powder horn which was found at Glastonbury by Charles Griffin in 1833 in the wall of an old house which formerly stood where the Wilts and Dorset Bank is now erected. Mr. Griffin's account of its discovery is as follows, when I was a boy about fifteen years of age I took a ladder up into the attic to see if there was anything hid in some holes that were just under the roof. Pushing my hand in the wall, I pulled out this carved horn, which then had a metal rim and cover of silver, I think. A man gave me a shilling for it, and he sold it to Mr. Porch. It is stated that a coronet was engraved or stamped on the silver rim which has now disappeared. 
Illustration, 17th Century Powder Horn, found in the wall of an old house at Glastonbury. Now in Glastonbury Museum Monmouth's Harassed Army occupied Glastonbury on the night of June 22, 1685, and it is extremely probable that the powder horn was deposited in its hiding place by some wavering follower who had decided to abandon the Duke's cause. There is another relic of Monmouth's Rebellion, now in the Taunton Museum, a spyglass, with the aid of which Mr. Spark, from the Tower of Chedzoe, discovered the King's troops marching down Sedgemoor on the day previous to the fight and gave information thereof to the Duke, who was quartered at Bridgewater. It was preserved by the family for more than a century, and given by Miss Mary Spark, the great-granddaughter of the above William Spark, in 1822 to a Mr. Stradling, who placed it in the museum. The spyglass, which is a very primitive construction, is in four sections or tubes of bone covered with parchment. Relics of war and fighting are often stored in country houses, thus at Swallowfield Park. The residence of Lady Russell, was found, when an old tree was grubbed up. Some gold and silver coins of the reign of Charles I. It is probable that a cavalier, when hard-pressed, threw his purse into a hollow tree, intending, if he escaped, to return and rescue it. This, for some reason, he was unable to do, and his money remained in the tree until old age necessitated its removal. The late Sir George Russell, Bart, caused a box to be made of the wood of the tree and in it he placed the coins, so that they should not be separated after their connection of two centuries and a half. We give an illustration of a remarkable flagon of Belmel for holding spiced wine, found in an old manor house in Norfolk. It is of English make, and was manufactured about the year 1450. It is embossed with the old royal arms of England crowned and repeated several times, and has an inscription in Gothic letters, God is grace be in this place. Amen. Stand out here from the fire and let on just come near. Stand away. One just. This interesting flagon was bought from the Robinson Collection in 1879 by the nation, and is now in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Many old houses, happily, contain their stores of ancient furniture. Elizabethan bedsteads wherein, of course, the Virgin Queen reposed she made so many royal progresses that it is no wonder she slept in so many places. Expanding tables. Jacobean chairs and sideboards, and later on the beautiful productions of Chippendale, Sheridan, and Hippolythwaite. Some of the family chests are elaborate works of art. We give as an illustration a fine example of an Elizabethan chest. It is made of oak, inlaid with holly, dating from the last quarter of the 16th century. Its length is 5 feet 2 inches its height 2 feet 11 in. It is in the possession of Sir Coleridge Grove, KCB of the Manor House, Warborough in Oxfordshire. The staircases are often elaborately carved, which form a striking feature of many old houses. The old Aldermaston Court was burnt down, but fortunately the huge figures on the staircase were saved and appear again in the new court, the residence of a distinguished antiquary, Mr. Charles Geezer, F.S.A. Hartwell House, in Buckinghamshire, once the residence of the exiled French court of Louis XVII during the revolution and the period of the ascendancy of Napoleon I has some curiously carved oaken figures adorning the staircase, representing Hercules, the Furies, and various knights in armor. We give an illustration of the staircase newel in Cromwell House, Highgate, with its quaint little figure of a man standing on a lofty pedestal. Illustration, Elizabethan chest, in the possession of Sir Coleridge Grove, KCB Height. 2 feet 11 inches, length, 5 feet 2 in. Sometimes one comes across strange curiosities in old houses, 
the odds and ends which time has accumulated. On page 201 is a representation of a water clock or clepsydra which was made at Norwich by an ingenious person named Parson in 1610. It is constructed on the same principle as the timepieces used by the Greeks and Romans. The brass tube was filled with water, which was allowed to run out slowly at the bottom. A cork floated at the top of the water in the tube, and as it descended the hour was indicated by the pointer on the dial above. This ingenious clock has now found its way into the museum in Norwich Castle. The interesting contents of old houses would require a volume for their complete enumeration. In looking at these ancient buildings, which time has spared us, we seem to catch a glimpse of the lamp of memory which shines forth in the illuminated pages of Ruskin. The men, our forefathers, who built these houses, built them to a last, and not for their own generation. It would have grieved them to think that their earthly abode, which had seen and seemed almost to sympathize in all their honor, their gladness or their suffering that this, with all the record it bear of them, and of all material things that they had loved and ruled over, and set the stamp of themselves upon was to be swept away as soon as there was room made for them in the grave. They valued and prized the house that they had reared, or added to, or improved, hence they loved to carve their names or their initials on the lintels of their doors or on the walls of their houses with the date, on the stone houses of the Cotswolds, in Derbyshire, Lancashire, Cumberland, wherever good building stone abounds, you can see these inscriptions, initials usually those of husband and wife, which preserve the memorial of their names as long as the house remained in the family, alas, too often the memorial conveys no meaning, and no one knows the names they represent, but it was a worthy feeling that prompted this building for futurity, there is a mystery about the inscription recorded in the illustration, TD 1678, it was discovered, together with a sword temp, Charles I.I., between the ceiling and the floor when an old farmhouse called Dundries, that stoked under ham, was pulled down. The year was one of great political disturbance, being that in which the so-called Popish plot was exploited by Titus Oates. Possibly, T.D. was fearful of being implicated, concealed this inscription, and effected his escape. Our forefathers must have been animated by the spirit which caused Mr. Ruskin to write, when we build, let us think that we build forever, let it not be for present delight, nor for present use alone, let it be such work as our descendants will thank us for, and let us think, as we lay stone on stone, that a time is to come when those stones will be held sacred because our hands have touched them, and that men will say as they look upon the labor and wrought substance of them, see, this our fathers did for us. Illustration, piece of wood carved with inscription found with a sword temp, Charles I.I. in an old house at Stoke Underham. Somerset contrast these old houses with the modern suburban abominations, those thin tottering foundationless shells of splintered wood and imitated stone, those gloomy rows of formalized minuteness, alike without difference and without fellowship, as solitary as similar, as Ruskin calls them. These modern erections had no more relation to their surroundings than would a Pullman car or a newly painted piece of machinery. Age cannot improve the appearance of such things, but age only mellows and improves our ancient houses, solidly built of good materials. The golden stain of time only adds to their beauties. The vines have clothed their walls and the green lawns about them have grown smoother and thicker, and the passing of the centuries has served but to tone them down and bring them into closer harmony with nature. With their garden walls and hedges they almost seem to have grown in their places as did the great trees that stand nearby. They had nothing of the uneasy look of the parvenu about them. They had an air of dignified repose, 
the spirit of ancient peace seems to arrest upon them and their beautiful surroundings. Chapter VII The destruction of prehistoric remains We still find in various parts of the country traces of the prehistoric races who inhabited our island and left their footprints behind them, which startle us as much as ever the print of Friday's feet did the indomitable Robinson Crusoe. During the last fifty years we have been collecting the weapons and implements of early man, and have learned that the history of Britain did not begin with the year BC 55, when Julius Caesar attempted his first conquest of our island. Our historical horizon has been pushed back very considerably, and every year adds new knowledge concerning the Paleolithic and Neolithic races, and the first users of bronze and iron tools and weapons. We have learned to prize what they have left, to recognize the immense archaeological value of these remains, and of their inestimable prehistoric interest. It is therefore very deplorable to discover that so much has been destroyed, obliterated, and forgotten. We have still some left. Examples are still to be seen of megalithic structures, narrows, cromlechs, camps, earthen or walled castles, hut circles, and other remains of the prehistoric inhabitants of these islands. We have many monoliths, called in Wales and Cornwall, as also in Brittany, Menhirs, a name derived from the Celtic word mean or men, signifying a stone, and her meaning tall. They are also called Logan stones and Hor stones, Hor meaning a boundary inasmuch as they were frequently used in later times to mark the boundary of an estate, parish, or manor. A vast number have been torn down and used as gateposts or for building purposes, and a recent observer in the West Country states that he has looked in vain for several where he knew that not long ago they existed. If in the lands and district you climb the ascent of Bali, the place of blood, where Athelstan fought and slew the Britons, you can see, the pipers, two great men fears. 12 and 16 feet high, and the whole stone, which is really an ancient cross, but you will be told that the cruel druids used to tie their human victims for sacrifice to the stone, and you would shudder at the memory if you did not know that the druids were very philosophical folk, and never did such dreadful deeds, another kind of megalithic monument are the stone circles, only they are circles no longer, many stones having been carved away to mend walls, if you look at the ordnance map of Penzance you will find large numbers of these circles, but if you visit the spots where they are supposed to be, you will find that many had vanished. The Merry Maidens, not far from the Pipers, still remain nineteen great stones, which Fairy Lore perhaps supposes to have been once fair maidens who danced to the tune the Pipers played era Celtic Medusa gazed at them and turned them into stone. Everyone knows the story of the Rollright Stones, a similar stone circle in Oxfordshire which were once upon a time a king and his army, and were converted into stone by a witch who cast a fatal spell upon them by the words move no more, stand fast. Stone, king of England thou shalt none. The solitary stone is the ambitious monarch who was told by an oracle that if he could see long Compton he would be king of England, the circle is his army, and the five, whispering knights, are five of his chieftains, who were hatching a plot against him when the magic spell was uttered. Local legends have sometimes helped to preserve these stones. The farmers around Rollright say that if these stones are removed from the spot they will never rest, but make mischief till they are restored. There is a well-known cromlech at Stanton Drew, in Somerset, and there are several in Scotland, the Channel Islands, and Brittany. Some sacrilegious persons transported a cromlech from the Channel Islands, and set it up at Park Place, Henley on Thames. Such an act of antiquarian barbarism happily has few imitators. Stonehenge, with its well-wrought stones and gigantic trilithic, 
is one of the latest of the stone circles, and was doubtless made in the Iron Age, about 200 years before the Christian era, and Aquarians have been very anxious about its safety. In 1900 one of the great upright stones fell, bringing down the cross piece with it, and several learned societies have been invited by the owner, Sir Edmund Entrobus, to furnish recommendations as to the best means of preserving this unique memorial of an early race. We are glad to know that all that can be done will be done to keep Stonehenge safe for future generations. We need not record the existence of dolmens, or table stones, the remains of burial mounds, which have been washed away by denudation, nor of what the French folk call alignments, or lines of stones, which have suffered like other megalithic monuments. Barrows or tumuli are still plentiful, great mounds of earth raised to cover the prehistoric dead, but many have disappeared. Some have been worn down by plowing, as on the Berkshire Downs, others have been dug into for gravel. The making of golf links has disturbed several, as at Swinningdale, where several barrows were destroyed in order to make a good golf course. Happily their contents were carefully guarded, and are preserved in the British Museum and in that of reading. Earthworks and camps still guard the British ancient roads and trackways, and you still admire their triple volume and their cleverly protected entrance. Happily the Earthworks Committee of the Congress of Archaeological Societies watches over them, and strives to protect them from injury. Kent dwellings and the so-called ancient British villages are in many instances sorely neglected, and are often buried beneath masses of destructive briars and ferns. We can still trace the course of several of the great tribal boundaries of prehistoric times. The grim stikes that are seen in various parts of the country. Gigantic earthworks that so surprised the Saxon invaders that they attributed them to the agency of the devil or grim. Here and there much has vanished, but stretches remain with a high bank 12 or 14 feet high and a ditch. The labor of making these earthen ramparts must have been immense in the days when the builders of them had only picks made out of stag's horns and such simple tools to work with. Along some of our hillsides are curious turf-cut monuments which always attract our gaze and make us wonder who first cut out these figures on the face of the chalk hill. There is the great white horse on the Berkshire Downs above Uffington, which we like to think was cut out by Alfred's men after his victory over the Danes on the Ashdown Hills. We are told, however, that that cannot be, and that it must have been made at least a thousand years before King Alfred's glorious reign. Some of these monuments are in danger of disappearing. They need scouring pretty constantly. As the weeds and grass will grow over the face of the bare chalk and tend to obliterate the figures, the Berkshire White Horse wanted grooming badly a short time ago, and the present writer was urged to approach the noble owner, the Earl of Craven, and urge the necessity of a scouring. The Earl, however, needed no reminder, and the White Horse is now thoroughly groomed, and looks as fit and active as ever. Other steeds on our hillsides have in modern times been so cut and altered in shape that their nearest relations would not know them. Thus the white horse at Westbury, in Wiltshire, is now a sturdy-looking little cob, quite up-to-date and altogether modern, very different from the old shape of the animal. The vanishing of prehistoric monuments is due to various causes. A bury had at one time within a great rampart and a fosse, which is still forty feet deep, a large circle of rough-and-hewn stones and within these two circles each containing a smaller concentric circle. Two avenues of stones led to the two entrances to the space surrounded by the fosse. It must have been a vast and imposing edifice, much more important than Stonehenge, and the area within this great circle exceeds 28 acres, with a diameter of 1200 feet. But the spoilers have been at work, 
and Farmer George and other depredators have carved away so many of the stones, and done so much damage, that much imagination is needed to construct in the eye of the mind this wonder of the world. Everyone who journeys from London to Oxford by the Great Western Railway knows the appearance of the famous Whitman Clumps, a few miles from historic Wallingford. If you ascend the hill you will find it a paradise for antiquaries. The camp itself occupies a commanding position overlooking the valley of the Thames, and has doubtless witnessed many tribal fights, and the great contest between the Celts and the Roman invaders. In the plain beneath is another remarkable earthwork. It was defended on three sides by the Thames, and a strong double rampart had been made across the court of the bow formed by the river. There was also a trench which in case of danger could have been filled with water, but the spoiler has been at work here. In 1870 a farmer employed his men during a hard winter in digging down the west side of the rampart and flinging the earth into the fosse. The farmer intended to perform a charitable act, and charity is said to cover a multitude of sins, but his action was disastrous to antiquaries and has almost destroyed a valuable prehistoric monument. There is a noted camp at Ashbury, erroneously called Alfred's Castle, on an elevated part of Swinley Down, in Berkshire, not far from Ashdown Park. The seat of the Earl of Craven. Lysons tells us that formerly there were traces of buildings here, and Aubrey says that in his time the earthworks were almost quite defaced by digging for Sarsden stones to build my Lord Craven's house in the park. Pearl Hill Camp, in Boxford Parish, near Newbury, has little left, so much of the earth having been removed at various times. Rabbits, too, are great destroyers as they disturb the original surface of the ground and make it difficult for investigators to make out anything with certainty. Sometimes local tradition, which is wonderfully long-lived, helps the archaeologist in his discoveries. An old man told an antiquary that a certain barrow in his parish was haunted by the ghost of a soldier who wore golden armor. The antiquary determined to investigate and dug into the barrow, and there found the body of a man with a gold or bronze breastplate. I am not sure whether the armor was gold or bronze. Now here is an amazing instance of folk memory. The chieftain was buried probably in Anglo-Saxon times, or possibly earlier, during 1300 years, at least. The memory of that burial has been handed down from father to son until the present day. It almost seems incredible. It seems something like sacrilege to disturb the resting places of our prehistoric ancestors, and to dig into barrows and examine their contents but much knowledge of the history and manners and customs of the early inhabitants of our island has been gained by these investigations. Year by year this knowledge grows owing to the patient labors of industrious antiquaries, and perhaps our predecessors would not mind very much the disturbing of their remains, if they reflected that we are getting to know them better by this means, and are almost on speaking terms with the makers of stone axes, celts and arrowheads, and are great admirers of their skill and ingenuity. It is important that all these monuments of antiquity should be carefully preserved, that plans should be made of them, and systematic investigations undertaken by competent and skilled antiquaries. The old stone monuments and the later Celtic crosses should be rescued from serving such purposes as brook bridges, stone walls, stepping stones, and gate posts and reared again on their original sites. They are of national importance, and the nation should do this. Chapter IX Cathedral Cities and Abbey Towns There is always an air of quietude and restfulness about an ordinary cathedral city. Some of our cathedrals are set in busy places, in great centers of population, 
wherein the high towering minster looks down with a kind of pitying compassion upon the twalling folk and invites them to seek shelter and peace and the consolations of religion in her quiet courts. For ages she has watched over the city and seen generation after generation pass away. Kings and queens have come to allay their offerings on her altars, and have been born there amid all the pomp of stately mourning to lie in the gorgeous tombs that grace her choir. She has seen at all times of pillage and alarm, of robbery and spoliation, of change and disturbance, but she lives on, ever calling men with her quiet voice to look up in love and faith and prayer. But many of our cathedral cities are quite small places which owe their very life and existence to the stately church which pious hands have raised centuries ago. Their age after age the prayer of faith, the anthems of praise, and the divine services have been offered. In the glow of a summer's evening its heavenly architecture stands out, a mass of wondrous beauty, telling of the skill of the masons and craftsmen of olden days who put their hearts into their work and wrought so surely and so well. The green sward of the close, wherein the rooks caw and guard their nests, speaks of peace and joy that is not of earth. We walk through the fretted cloisters that once echoed with the tread of sandaled monks and saw them illuminating and copying wonderful missiles, antiphonaries and other manuscripts which we prize so highly now. The deanery is close at hand, a venerable house of peace and learning, and the canon's houses tell of centuries of devoted service to God's church, wherein many a distinguished scholar, able preacher, and learned writer has lived and sent forth his burning message to the world, and now lies at peace in the quiet minster. The fabric of the cathedrals is often in danger of becoming part and parcel of vanishing England. Everyone has watched with anxiety the gallant efforts that have been made to save Winchester. The insecure foundations, based on timbers that had rotted, threatened to bring down that wondrous pile of masonry. And now Canterbury is in danger. The Dean and Chapter of Canterbury having recently completed the reparation of the central tower of the cathedral, now find themselves confronted with responsibilities which require still heavier expenditure. It has recently been found that the upper parts of the two western towers are in a dangerous condition. All the pinnacles of these towers have had to be partially removed in order to avoid the risk of dangerous injury from falling stones, and a great part of the external work of the two towers is in a state of grievous decay. The chapter were warned by the architect that they would incur an anxious responsibility if they did not at once adopt measures to obviate this danger. Further, the architect states that there are some fissures and shakes in the supporting piers of the central tower within the cathedral, and that some of the stonework shows signs of crushing. He further reports that there is urgent need of repair to the nave windows, the south transept roof, the warrior's chapel, and several other parts of the building. The nave pinnacles are reported by him to be in the last stage of decay, large portions falling frequently, or having to be removed. In these modern days we run, tubes, and underground railways in close proximity to the foundations of historic buildings, and thereby endanger their safety. The Grand Cathedral of St. Paul, London, was threatened by a tube, and only saved by vigorous protest from having its foundations jarred and shaken by rumbling trains in the bowels of the earth. Moreover, by sewers and drains the earth is made devoid of moisture, and therefore is liable to crack and crumble and to disturb the foundations of ponderous buildings. St. Paul still causes anxiety on this account, and requires all the care and vigilance of the skillful architect who guards it. The old Norman builders loved a central tower, which they built low and squat. Happily they built surely and well, firmly and solidly, as their successors loved to pile course upon course upon their Norman towers, to erase a massive superstructure, and often crown them with a lofty, graceful,
but heavy spire. No wonder the early masonry has, at times, protested against this additional weight, and many mighty central towers and spires have fallen and brought ruin on the surrounding stonework. So it happened at Chichester and in several other noble churches. St. Alban's Tower very nearly fell. There the ingenuity of destroyers and vandals at the dissolution had dug a hole and removed the earth from under one of the piers, hoping that it would collapse. The old tower held on for three hundred years, and then the mighty mass began to give way, and Sir Gilbert Scott tells the story of its reparation in 1870, of the triumphs of the skill of modern builders, and their bravery and resolution in saving the fall of that great tower. The greatest credit is due to all concerned in that hazardous and most difficult task. It had very nearly gone. The story of Peterborough, and of several others, shows that many of these vast fans which had borne the storms and frosts of centuries are by no means too secure, and that the skill of wise architects and the wealth of the Englishmen of today are sorely needed to prevent them from vanishing. If they fell, new and modern work would scarcely compensate us for their loss. We will take Wells as a model of a cathedral city which entirely owes its origin to the noble church and palace built there in early times. The city is one of the most picturesque in England, situated in the most delightful country, and possessing the most perfect ecclesiastical buildings which can be conceived. Jocelyn de Wells, who lived at the beginning of the 13th century 1206-39, has for many years had the credit of building the main part of this beautiful house of God. It is hard to have one's beliefs and early traditions upset, but modern authorities, with much reason, tell us that we are all wrong and that another Jocelyn one Reginald Phipps Jocelyn 1171-91 was the main builder of Wells Cathedral. Old documents recently discovered decide the question, and, moreover, the style of architecture is certainly earlier than the fully developed early English of Jocelyn de Wells, the latter, and also bishops of Veracruz 1190-1205, carried out the work, but the whole design and a considerable part of the building are due to Bishop Reginald Phipps Jocelyn, his successors until the middle of the 15th century, went on perfecting the wondrous shrine, and I, 